Welcome to another week of This Week in Government Enforcement. As always, I'm Jerome Thomas, joined by Tom Firestone. Uh, we got a lot to cover today. Um, Tom's going to get through uh, a number of things. Uh, update on January 6, 2021 events, the White House uh, anti-corruption policy update, um, new OFAC sanctions on corruption, fair updates, and then I'm going to bring us home talking about a, a new report out by uh, a division of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency talking about um, initiatives that is going to be um, engaging in relating to climate change in the banking sector. I think it's fascinating. It's something that probably portends what the future regulatory regime looks like for climate change. Before we get there, Tom, it's been a long time since I did this. And it's, I know not everyone celebrates Christmas, but it's the last thing before we celebrate Christmas. So I'm going to break into a, a song, and, and it's a song, Tom, that I thought of last night as I was preparing for this. It's, it's, a, it's a song about banks foreclosing on farms in the 80s written by John Mellencamp called Rain on the Scarecrow. song last night as I was writing this, because as always, whenever I think of, of climate change, Tom, my, my mom was born on a farm, my grandpa still lives on a farm, my uncle still lives on a farm. I always think of all this stuff and the impact on business through the impact it would have on farmers. And I realize that's a, a small aspect of the overall impact of the climate change. We'll talk about this a little later on, but I think what the OCC is thinking about is gonna have you know, impacts not only on agriculture, but other aspects of the economy as well that could potentially be significant. With that, Tom, I'll hand it off to you, but I wanna give you guys all context about why I busted into a Mellencamp tune from the 80s. <laughs> a great lead in, Jerome. Thanks. With that, I will turn to the latest developments in the January 6th Select Committee's investigation of the events of January 6th. A, the committee at the end of last week recommended contempt, uh, prosecution for contempt for Mark Meadows, the former presidential chief of staff. Um, this will now follow exactly the same precedent as the Bannon case. It'll go to Department of Justice and they will, and DOJ will decide whether or not to indict uh, Meadows for contempt. 
in light of the Bannon uh, decision, it's hard to see how they will not recommend prosecution, how the DOJ will not uh, recommend prosecution for Meadows. He began to cooperate, but then pulled out of his cooperation with basically little explanation. It doesn't seem like he's got a good argument for privilege. So it could well be that Meadows uh, is indicted for contempt unless he comes back and continues his cooperation. Now, in light of the Bannon uh, contempt indictment, several other witnesses who have been subpoenaed have invoked the have stated intention to invoke the Fifth Amendment including Roger Stone, a Trump advisor, John Eastman, the um, professor who wrote what is considered by some as to be the legal rationale um, for not certifying the election, why Pre Vice President Pence didn't have to certify the election, and former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, who apparently wanted DOJ to send a letter to the Georgia State Legislature suggesting that they get involved in questioning the election results. All three of them have indicated one way or another that they will take the Fifth Amendment. Now, this puts the um, select committee in an interesting quandary, because what are they going to say? Are they going to say, you don't have a good faith basis to invoke the Fifth Amendment, i.e., we don't think you committed a crime? Are they going to commit themselves to that position at this point and try to make them testify um, on the grounds that the invocation of the Fifth is improper? Or are they going to go ahead and immunize them? Now, that's typically what one does when so you know when a witness invokes the fifth amendment when you send a request you have to be prepared for the invocation of the fifth and be prepared to immunize now one might ask how can congress the congressional committee which does not have the power to indict immunize somebody from from criminal prosecution well in fact there is a statute 18 usc 6005 which allows a congressional investigating committee to do just that they can't immunize directly, they can go to the court for a court order, basically ordering the witness to testify and guaranteeing that the witness's statements will not be used against the witness, same as an ordinary, um, ordinary criminal prosecution. Now, what's interesting here is the DOJ does not have the right to object to this. So the Congressional Committee, if it gets an immunity order with regard to these witnesses, can put DOJ into a very difficult position because it has essentially immunized DOJ's potential targets um, and or witnesses, a decision that the DOJ prosecutors might not have made themselves. Now, this can create problems if it's somebody you want to prosecute. You and I are both old enough to remember the Oliver North case, the Iran-Contra scandal from the mid-1980s. North, who was represented by one of the great criminal defense lawyers of all time, Brendan Sullivan, went in, he testified under a grant of immunity before the Congressional Investigating Committee. DOJ nevertheless prosecuted him for obstruction. He came back and sought to have the prosecution, the conviction overturned on the grounds that it violated the immunity order. He was testifying pursuant to immunity, and he claimed DOJ had used his statements against him. Now, it wasn't DOJ, actually, it should be precise. It was the independent counsel at the time, Lawrence Walsh, who was prosecuting the uh, defendants in the Iran-Contra scandal. Walsh did, he set his team up in exactly the right way. He had a clean team and a dirty team. So he was able to show that the prosecutors on the North prosecution had not been exposed to North's immunized testimony, a very high showing, very high standard to meet. Nevertheless, the Walsh team met that standard. But what they couldn't prove was that one of their other cooperating witnesses, Bud McFarlane, who was North's, North's boss at the National Security Council, 
They, the court said, you've got to show that none of your witnesses, none of your cooperating witnesses relied on North's testimony. McFarlane apparently, I mean, I guess he testified truthfully, but he really did his old friend Ollie North a favor here because he then came out and testified said, oh yes, of course I read Wal- uh, North's testimony before I was uh, in preparing for my own testimony in the North case. I was very familiar with all of it, essentially killing the North prosecution. North's conviction was then overturned and he went free all because the congressional committee had decided to immunize him in the first place. All of which is just to say, this is the Congress, the January 6th Select Committee must proceed with extreme caution here, because if they immunize any of these witnesses, that's it, they're never going to be prosecuted. Um, So we'll we'll continue to follow that, but a fascinating development. It'll be interesting to see what happens with Meadows if they go ahead and indict him, the same as they indicted um, Bannon. Separately, Last week, the White House released its new anti-corruption strategy. Now, if you read the thing, it is a long, sprawling document, which covers just about everything under the sun. And it attempts to break down the US government's anti-corruption strategy into five what it calls pillars. Um, The first is modernizing, coordinating, and resourcing US government efforts to better fight corruption. The second is curbing illicit finance. The third is holding corrupt actors accountable. The fourth is preserving and strengthening multilateral anti-corruption architecture. The fifth is improving diplomatic engagement and leveraging foreign assistance resources to achieve anti-corruption policy objectives. Now you read this, this is just, this is like everything. There's nothing that's left out of there. If you read the report, they cover everything from, you know, democracy assistance, COVID in Peru, um, various sanctions, money laundering, and the Cl- climate change funding, climate change combating. It's everything, Tom. It's everything. I, it's clear what happened is that the National Security Council sent out a tasking to every U.S. federal government agency that has anything to do with corruption, including DOJ, the SEC, the Department of Defense, the Department of Commerce. Tell us what you're doing to fight corruption. They all came back and they stuck it all into one document and said, this is our strategy. So it's, it's useful because it gives a good window into what the U.S. government is doing and how they're trying to be comprehensive. Finding the key takeaways, though, requires a little bit of work. I would suggest what I got out of this document in terms of what we can look for new in terms of the uh, U.S. government's anti-corruption efforts are the following. I think we're going to see a much greater role for the Treasury Department combating corruption. Um, I think that sort of the locus of power in anti-corruption has shifted somewhat, not entirely, but somewhat from DOJ to Treasury. Sanctions are going to continue to be a major instrument of anti-corruption. I'll talk about that in a second. There's also, with the passage of the Corporate Transparency Act last year, requiring the provision of information about UBOs, newly registered companies, to FinCEN, FinCEN, which of course is part of Treasury, is going to be a repository of so much of the information the U.S. government is going to use to go after illicit finance. So I think we're going to see an increased role for Treasury. A second takeaway from from the uh, strategy report for me is a new focus on cryptocurrency. We've talked about this a lot. Crypto is an emerging area. It's sort of a legally gray zone in a lot of areas. Attracts a lot of people who may not be used to standards of corporate governance and has generated a lot of cases already, many of which you've reported on, Jerome. And one of the things in the report is a new focus on cryptocurrency and the establishment of the DOJ task force 
to focus on crypto-related crimes. A third takeaway for me is a new focus on the demand side of bribery. I think this is well done. Um, it needed to be done. So much of US government effort in combating corruption over the last 15 to 20 years is focused on the supply side, US companies, other listed companies paying bribes overseas. That's all well and good and necessary. What about the other side, the people who are receiving these bribes, who are demanding these bribes? That has not gotten nearly as much attention. And now the US government has said that it's going to try to focus more effort on going after the demand side of bribery. It's going to work with foreign governments to push them to get their own officials under control, pass legislation in the US criminalizing the demand side of bribery as well. This is consistent with the new OECD working group on bribery recommendations on combating, uh, combating bribery international transactions. And I think this is a welcome relief to business and something that's long overdue. Something else that comes out of this is um, new emphasis on cooperation with non-government actors for information. One of the obstacles that DOJ of course runs into in prosecuting transnational bribery is getting information about it. Bribery is not conducted openly. A lot of times the foreign government who is in possession of information about the bribery, the bribe receiving specifically, doesn't want to share it because they don't want to make themselves look bad, obviously. So the report talks about cooperating with NGOs and other non-government actors who may have this information through various sources, investigative reporting, et cetera, et cetera. And traditionally, the government has been reluctant to use that kind of information. There's issues about getting it into getting it admitted in court, the reliability of the sources, but now they're stating officially, uh, explicitly that they are going to use that. So those are some of the takeaways that I um, that I saw in there that are really new and different from what we've seen before. A lot of it is familiar territory, but there are some new points. And I think I just, you know, hopefully hit on some of them. We also got a preview last week of what this is going to look like in practice. On National Anti-Corruption Day, December 9th, OFAC announced uh, sanctions um, on 15 individuals and entities specifically for corruption-related offenses in Central America, Africa, and Europe. If you read through these, they're quite interesting um, narratives describing them. A lot are related to COVID-related fraud. Some are related to broader procurement um, fraud within the country. Others are related specifically to um, judicial fraud, uh, bribery in the judiciary. One thing I'd point out, and we'll talk about how national security and anti-corruption strategies go hand in hand, a lot of the sanctions from last week are focused on corruption in Central America. The Biden administration, as you recall, came out with a strategy saying the way we're going to address illegal immigration from Central America is to try to crack down on corruption in Central America, which is, of course, a push factor for immigration. So here we really see legal instruments to combat corruption working together to further national security ends of limiting illegal immigration. I think this is a very forward-looking um, forward strategy. I know um, of one case, not in Central America, in another part of the world, where um, a party involved in a matter that I have um, some knowledge of was expecting a corrupt judicial decision last week. And as a result of these sanctions, which hit the, the country in question, apparently the source told me that the court that was expected to issue this decision backed off and said, no, the US is now hitting us for judicial bribery. We're not going to do anything near this. And so this what was expected to be a corrupt judicial decision never materialized. So this just shows how these sanctions can actually work by sending targeted messages 
the actors in foreign countries. And so we'll have to see how it develops. But it seems like they really are taking, trying to take a um, all of government approach, connect the dots, work the different pieces together to achieve very specific ends. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is something that else that also relates to this sort of intersection between national security and government enforcement, which is the Foreign Agent Registration Act, something we've talked about before. Last week, DOJ um, announced proposed rulemaking around FARA, um, seeking input from practitioners in the field about where they think the statute should be tightened up and clarified. And they identified a few key specific points in the statute, including the definition of agent, which right now is extremely broad and includes anyone who acts at the request of a foreign principal to engage in any of the covered activities. Um, definition of political consultant, also a covered category under the statute. Right now, somebody who in the US advises a foreign principal, state actor, non-state actor, about, few, about political developments in the US, including potentially whether or not certain legislation could be will be passed, could potentially fall within the scope of Farah as a political consultant. Um, yeah, Tom, there's also that ruling on a, 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 a party, a US party advising a foreign government on the way to form or formulate public opinion in favor of certain uh, environmental friendly initiatives in the US and around the world. Absolutely, that's clearly so, covered. Yep. That is clearly covered yes. because you're advising a foreign principal, again, doesn't have to be a government, can be a private actor, yep. on how yep. to influence US public opinion yes. on a issue of political importance, clearly covered by Farah. There are others that are a little bit murkier. There is a something, a couple other points they hit in the um, uh, proposed rulemaking. The commercial exemption, this basically exempts wisely ordinary commercial activity. Question is, how does it apply in the context of a state-owned enterprise? Okay. Furthering the interests of a state-owned enterprise, are you furthering the interests of a foreign government? How should that be interpreted? It's a gray area right now, and they're seeking clarification on that. One other point is the lawyer's exemption, which if you, if anybody can figure that out, I, I applaud them because the lawyer's exemption basically says lawyers are exempt, uh, provided they're engaging in activity on the record for a disclosed client, um, everything else. So disclosed foreign principle, which I'm not, I'm not even sure what disclosed foreign principle means. Well, that, there's that, but then it's also the other, the other kicker to it is that you're also, you're exempt for, you know, you and I go into court on behalf of a foreign client, that's not covered by FARA, clearly. Yes, it's, it's, it's exactly. Yeah. Try to influence policy on behalf of a foreign principal likely is covered, even though we're lawyers. The question is, what about everything in between those two extremes? What they say right now is that legal representation in an official proceeding on the record, obviously covered by the exemption, as well as normal legal representation ancillary to that protected activity. What does that mean? Nobody can figure this so out. I got, I, got a, I got a great example. So let's say I got a, a, a foreign client who, is, and it doesn't have to be a foreign government. Let's, let's be perfectly clear. This could be a private foreign organization. Exactly. It's me to go in and get a no action letter from the SEC on a particular transaction that would say, this is not something that requires uh, 
that requires registration as a broker dealer or investment advisor under the you know Exchange Act or the 40 Act, or it's not something that would have to be registered as a securities offering under the the, the Securities Act, hypothetically speaking. Um, and, and you go in and you disclose who your client is because you have to disclose uh, in, in the context of a no action or who your client is. But that's not, that's not a- You'd be protected. You'd be protected by the lawyer's exemption in that case. You've disclosed your client and it's classic legal activity. You're going to the SEC as a lawyer on behalf of that client. Where it gets murky is you go beyond that. You make a statement to the press. Oh, my client got a no right. letter. Um, you're involved in litigation and you're talking to the press uh, about litigation. You're trying to change policy that would affect not just your client, but okay. other similarly situated companies from the foreign country. There's where you get into very okay. uh, muddy waters. And that's what we're hoping to clarify. The final thing I'll say on Farah, though, I think is not contained in DOJ's proposed rulemaking announcement from last week, but rather something that DOJ said at the annual ACI Farah conference last week in Washington. This is really the flagship um, FARA conference every year, brings together um, FARA practitioners as well as the key enforcers from DOJ. DOJ has taken the position, they've hinted at the position in the past, now they seem to be taking it more explicitly, that FARA could apply to activities not within the United States. The statute specifically refers to activities within the United States. They are now taking the position that that means not just physically present in the territory of the United States, but activities outside of the United States directed at a US audience. Now, what they're really talking about is a situation somebody you know, moves their webinar, does a webinar from Canada so that they can broadcast into the US and get out of FARA. That they say is covered. But once you make that, take that position, that opens up the floodgates to a lot of other foreign activity. And what the director of the FARA unit said last week at this conference was we really look at intentions and effects in the US. So if this reading is officially adopted by DOJ and applied, we could be looking at a situation where basically every foreign media PR company could be covered, could be required to register under FARA because they would be broadcasting from abroad at a US audience. Um, and if they can establish that, they can take the position you should be registered under FARA. This would be a dramatic expansion from the black letter law of the statute, one that they claim is supported by the legislative history and how it's historically been interpreted. So we'll have to see if that happens, we are looking at a significant, significant expansion in the scope of FARA. Tons of stuff, Tom. Awesome, well done, thank you, fascinating. Thanks, over to you. Yeah, thanks. So I want to talk uh, about uh, last week's report by the National Risk Committee of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency um, in its semi-annual risk perspective report. Um, if you read it sort of at first blush, it's, it, it, it reads like a report that you would expect the banking regulator to send out. And I'll give you a little bit of information about what exactly the OCC is. But it's a wide-ranging report. That includes, you know, cybersecurity, among other things, um, as you know, prevalent and ever emerging risks to U.S. banks and, frankly, to the financial institutions uh, space in the U.S. as a whole. Um, that's not what I like to talk about today. What I like to talk about is the report's analysis of climate change. Um, uh, I, I think it's fascinating, right? Because you can see federal regulators sort of trying to 
figure out what they're going to do about the risk climate change presents to their regulated constituencies. Um, I think many of the principles that are referenced in the National Risk Committee's report um, uh, as relating to banks on climate change can also in some way be applied by comparison in other industries. And it frankly could present a lens into how US federal regulatory apparatus um, is looking at how companies and organizations manage and disclose climate change risk. So real quickly, for those who don't know or those who are as confused about the US federal banking system as I think Tom and I are, it's a mess thanks to Andrew Jackson among other things. But quickly, um, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency charters, regulates, and supervises national banks federal savings associations and licenses and regulates and supervises federal branches and agencies of foreign banking organizations. Um, that might sound like every bank under the sun, but suffice it to say there are other banks that exist in the United States that are outside of the OCC's regulatory regime. But the OCC is one of the main, if not the main banking regulator in the United States. Um, the OCC's National Risk Committee monitors the condition of the federal banking system and identifies risks presented to those banks um, subject to its regulatory purview. <laughs> um, this semi-annual risk perspective report addresses key issues that are facing banks, but it's specifically focusing on those that pose threats to the safety and soundness of banks and their compliance with applicable laws and regulations. Um, <laughs> the report listed four main areas of risk, credit risk, operational risk, compliance risk and strategic risk. However, what it did what, and why I'm here talking today is it layered on top of all of these risk areas, and I encourage you to look at it, um, a discussion of the OCC's climate risk initiative. Um, it didn't shoehorn it into any one risk area, Tom. It sort of layered it on top of it. And I think that makes sense because you can see the OCC looking at this saying, well, we think this could have impact in a number of different risk areas. We don't know which is more prevalent than the others. So we're just going to sort of put it there and have it tied on to all four risk areas. Um, so what did they say? So the, the this National Risk Committee, and we'll call it the NRC, um, noted that climate change presents uh, risk to the financial system driven by the impacts of climate change on households, communities, businesses, and governments across the United States and around the world. Again, that's sort of, you know, like I call it, that's like, you know, Dan Deardorff, Monday Night Football. That's a statement of the obvious. Of course, climate change presents risks to basically every constituency that lives on Earth. And it noted that banks are exposed to physical and, tra physical and transition risks presented by climate change. It gets into those later, which may impact, here we go, Tom, the safety and soundness of the supervised institution. That's the money line right there. Um, so I look at this as, again, I, and I look at this, I look at all climate change issues from where I was raised, growing up, being taken to my family farm, 100 and some miles west of Chicago where my mom grew up. I look at all these issues through the immediate lens of a sort of a someone who's associated with family farming, but clearly know that it has effects far broader than that. That's kind of how I look at this. So this is not a so this is not a solution to climate change, nor is it a list of warm and fuzzy think tank views on global macro climate change trends. What this is, Tom, 
it's the, the OCC's job is to regulate banks and help ensure the soundness of the various categories of banks and the bank's health and their balance sheets. Essentially, the OCC is in charge of making sure a bank's balance sheet is healthy. Um, what potential market disruptions caused by climate change that those can have a negative impact on the health of a bank's balance sheet? And what are the banks doing to help mitigate that risk? Um, so you can see here what the bank is saying, what the OCC and the NRC is saying is banks, think about how climate change is basically gonna impact the health of your business. It's not saying let's, let's reduce carbon footprints. Let's, let's uh, make sure that um, that uh, we steer the economy in a carbon neutral manner. No, it's saying banks, think about how climate change is gonna impact what is in your bank and how you're gonna mitigate that risk. So it identified physical risks driven by climate change. And this it refers to the harm to the people and property arising from acute climate related disaster events, such as hurricanes, wildfires, floods, heat waves, and more gradual chronic phenomena such as sea level rise. And it said, look, banks have shown a historical resilience in dealing with these events using risk mitigation tactics, including insurance and working with borrowers in affected areas. Um, yeah, I, I, when I read that, I'll just sort of, as an editorial aside, yes, there, are, there have been uh, environmental ebbs and flows throughout the years, no doubt. But if all the reports on climate change are, are what they are, um, you know, this is something that is going to be much larger and perhaps the lessons used in the past playbooks might not necessarily apply in the future. And I think that's what the OCC and the NRC is saying here. So what they're saying is the increased severity, frequency and breadth of extreme weather due to climate change is likely to impact economies and borrowers in ways that deviate from historical experience. Banks will need to consider risk management processes to deal with these and other long-term physical risk implication. So Tom, I'll take a time out here. So I was out at my, visiting my grandpa and my uncles and aunts who live on the farm a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the, the relatives from Georgia were up. And, um, you know, I, I, I was reminded that, you know, a few years ago, um, when some folks in the family died off and the family farm started getting split up, um, my, my uncle uh, asked me if I might be able to step in and buy some of the land, right? Because he, he didn't want to getting sold to strangers. He wanted to keep it in the family. And I'll, and I'll tell you, um, you know, this is something I've been following for years. One of the main reasons why I didn't buy land, the farmland, even though it was literally in my blood, is I said, geez, do I want to hold an asset that is basically dependent upon natural rainflow and natural snowfall in the winter to prevent evaporation of the water underground during those five or six months? And the answer is, I don't know that I want to hold that. And then so th this is me, and I'm not an investor, I'm not a hedge fund manager, but, I, but I'm just a guy who, see, who sees farmland all the time and knows the risks that climate change presents to farmland. And so I look, I, I read this, and this is one example, as, as the OCC and the NRC saying, banks Think about your, your debtor profile. What is the debtor's risk? And how is climate change going to impact that debtor's business? And what are you going to do to protect 
the basically the ability to get back your money, either in the form of a loan, a line of credit, whatever you call it, right? Think about that, Tom. I mean, I, I, I read that. And again, I'm no central banker, but you know, I immediately think of higher interest rates and, and less favorable loan terms to businesses that are more impacted by climate change. Again, that's sort of a statement of the obvious, but think about how significantly that impacts the entire economy. Higher interest rates, less available financing, businesses closing, foreclosures. Again, why I sang Right Now on the Scarecrow by John Cougar Mellencamp, because when I was reading is I literally thought of that song in the back of my mind. Um, I, I think this is a significant pronouncement by the OCC and the NRC. Again, they're not starting out regulating or, or, or reviewing all banks' practices. They're going to start out looking at the largest banks. And I think the OCC is going to start out slow in reviewing how banks are addressing these, these um, climate change-related risks. But I think this is real. And I think this is only going to get greater and greater. And we're going to see banks getting regulated as a result and, and examined and frankly, maybe even you know, subject to enforcement actions for failure to have adequate compliance and, 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 and uh, supervisory and, and, and soundness policies and procedures in place. That is gonna have a knock-on effect on businesses and frankly, in other government regulations, I think. I think, I think this might be a blueprint or possibly a part of a blueprint that uh, other regulators could use. And then there's this transition risks. I didn't quite get the outset. I had to read it a few times, but it's transition risks relate to the adjustment to a low carbon economy and include changes arising from government policy, technology, and consumer and investor sentiment. Um, this risk, they said, is particularly important if the transition is disorderly and abrupt. Um, there's more in the report than that, but I think what they're saying is uh, banks. If your main client base is a, an industry that is going to be at risk of being phased out over the next 10, 15, 20 years, um, you better think long and hard about what your balance sheet exposure is in those industries and how you are reducing the balance sheet risk to those institutions. And frankly, how are you removing your balance sheet exposure from those at risk industries to industries that are less at risk, more in favor. Um, so they said, look, you know, banks are likely to see impact from this economic transition potentially abruptly and likely long-term. There's sig significant challenges to understanding the timing as well as the direct and indirect implications of transition risk. Um, um, banks will need to consider potential corresponding climate change risks across all the existing traditional risk areas based on the bank size, complexity, and business model. Um, and so uh, and then, the, then the OCC announced you know, some internal um, uh, uh, process changes that it's putting in place to move forward this initiative and said it's going to start out um, examining and reviewing the, the larger national banks um, practices relating to mitigation of climate risk disclosures. But, but Tom, when I read this, I was, I was blown away by the potential magnitude of this, right? This isn't like requiring companies to disclose that climate change could force some of their businesses to have to relocate or move to territories less prone to climate change risk, or we might have to, over time, shift 
our business model from X to Y. This is, this is the OCC saying, you need to start looking right now at who your existing balance sheet exposure is comprised of and thinking about, and think about what you're going to do about that. Um, again, I don't think this is gonna to happen tomorrow or next week or even next year, but eventually I do think this portends a change in the overall banking structure and the banking avail the availability of financing to certain industries, certain regions, um, and, ju and just think about how that all plays out, and, and frankly, how that impacts the country politically and how that impacts the globe. Right there, it is certain industries, certain areas of the country that are not going to be able to get financing, um, and that might be right from a banking standpoint. Um, that might be right politically and just from an overall common sense standpoint, but politics oftentimes doesn't follow a lot of those things. And so I think this is gonna be fascinating. We're talking about it in the white collar context, because again, this is a financial banking regulator announcing what it expects certain large and ultimately all financial institutions under its purview to do. So I do think there's risk that or potential that, that some of these, these concepts bleed over into other financial industry and frankly, business disclosure regimes as well. Um, and it's fascinating to watch and frankly could impact businesses. So we felt it made sense to talk about here today. Well, it's just another example of how government enforcement, a narrow area can have ripple effects throughout the entire polity yeah. economy. And it's a, it's a great example, again, of what the Biden administration is trying to do, taking certain policy objectives and trying to achieve them through enforcement, just like we were talking about anti-corruption sanctions and the whole of government approach to anti-corruption. So it's um, sort of a fascinating laboratory for how that may play out in one specific yeah. space. Who knows? But they've, they've, they've said it, and we have to believe they're going to follow through on it. So this will be fascinating to watch. Well, they have to follow through on it once they've said it. So uh... yeah. maybe. Um, all right, <laughs> one. Uh, Tom, I don't think we're going to do next week because I'm in... Oh. I'm in meetings with the government next Monday anyway. Which is when and then we've got the holidays. We'll resume in the new year. All right. Hey, guys, everyone. It's been a great 2021, Tom. I can't believe it. We're flipping the calendar on our second calendar year of doing this. Um, thanks, everyone. We'll keep it up in the new year. We'll hit you with new stuff, great stuff. Until then, happy holidays, guys. And Gathering Crowds takes us away. Take care, Tommy. You too. Thanks, Tom.